again of hearing from Reverend John Frame, and the title of his talk this evening is Evangelical Reunion, which also happens to be the name of a very helpful book that Professor Frame has written on this topic of, of church unity, which I can say certainly helped me as I grappled with these issues, and uh, I believe it's, it's out of print, but I think it's available on the website now, right? Uh, thirdmill.org. So uh, give your attention now to Professor Frame. Well, thanks, Rich. Your singing is incredible. I, I, I don't know if it sounds the same everywhere in the auditorium, but for somebody standing up front, it's uh, very nearly overwhelming, but in a good way. I really uh, was uh, tremendously blessed by your praise that you're singing to the Lord. Well, you probably have an outline for uh, this talk called Evangelical Reunion someplace in your package. Let's see, which joke was I going to tell? <laughs> I think about the, yeah, okay, uh, the lady goes to the, to the post office to, uh, is that, uh, have they already heard that one? Uh, that's the right one. <laughs> uh, okay, the lady goes to the post office to uh, get uh, stamps for a Christmas list, and uh, she says to the uh, clerk, uh, I need 40 stamps, and he says, what denominations? And she replies, oh dear, has it come to this? Okay. Eight Catholics, five Baptists, 22 Presbyterians. <laughs> okay, Evangelical Reunion. This was the uh, book that I wrote that was in print for about 15 minutes back in uh, 1991. A few people wisely invested in them, and uh, I looked at uh, Christian book distributors uh, oh, about six months ago, and somebody still had a stash of about 25 of them lying around, so you might be able to get them. But uh, we, we republished it we, uh, after some uh, tugging and pulling with, with Baker. They originally said we could put it on the web, but, but we couldn't permit anybody to download it, which seemed a little confusing. But anyway, it's now on the www.thirdmill, that's for third millennium, uh, T-H-I-R-D-M-I-L-L, uh, dot org, they'll do com, that's a whole other thing. So uh, thirdmill.org, uh, source of a lot of neat theology, there are a lot of things there that uh, you might find interesting. Anyway, the whole book is there. Uh, don't do a search on my name. For some reason, that's a little bit, uh, doesn't work too well, but uh, click on Magazine Online, and then click on, I think, Practical Theology. It may be, may be just theology, but click on Practical Theology, and then click on my name, and they'll give you a bunch of things that I wrote, and, and uh, Evangelical Reunion is, uh, is there. This is kind of an outline of some of the basic uh, argumentation of it, uh, certainly not the whole thing. But uh, remember uh, my three lectures. The first one was kind of a, a sermon. The second one was on Machen's Warrior Children, more of a historical approach. And you remember the three perspectives. First, uh, focusing on us. Secondly, uh, focusing on history. 
And now thirdly, focusing directly on the word of God. Of course, you can't do one without doing the others. Um, so at the, in this lecture, I want to uh, directly uh, set forth what I think to be some biblical principles with regard to uh, denominations. Basically, this is my critique of denominationalism. Uh, indeed, it's my critique against the, various, the very existence of denominations. I agree with my brother John Armstrong that the main problem is not uh, denominations, the main problem is us, but uh, denominations themselves are a problem uh, because they don't uh, fit in with any kind of biblical understanding of church government. So uh, that's going to be the argument that I will make here. Under number two, Scripture teaches that there is one true church. The Lord wants all his people to be in one true church. As a matter of fact, there is only one true church, but sometimes it's a little bit difficult to locate. And I think the Lord wants the one true church to be easier to locate than it is in our present situation. Well, of course, there was a church before the fall, as Adam and Eve worshiped God together in the sanctuary that was called Eden. And after the fall, uh, their family continued to worship. We see Cain and Abel bringing sacrifices, and I won't tell that whole story. We see the third son, Seth, who bears a son named Enoch, and in his time, um, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So there is a worshiping community. Uh, people of God are together worshiping the Lord. Uh, make a long story short, we go to uh, uh, Israel coming out of Egypt, uh, into the wilderness, getting ready to come into the promised land. The Lord tells them over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy that there is to be a central altar. There is to be one place that the Lord himself will choose uh, in the promised land where the people are to uh, come and worship him and offer him sacrifice. Of course, you can worship God anywhere, and if by worship you simply mean pray, praying and uh, uh, singing praise and so on, but the one, only one place to bring sacrifices. So there's a unity here. The, the nation is united, is to be united around a single place of worship. And uh, this goal of, of unity is uh, presented uh, often. I, I cited uh, Psalm 133 there. Well, uh, after David uh, gains the victory uh, at uh, Jebus, uh, Jerusalem, the um, temple is built. And uh, for a while, uh, Israel enjoys uh, life around the central altar. But then, of course, um, Solomon is unfaithful to the Lord in many ways. Uh, his son Rehoboam is even more unfaithful, and the Lord takes away from Rehoboam the lordship, the kingship over the northern tribes, and gives the northern tribes, the uh, leadership of the nor northern tribes, to Jeroboam. This was of the Lord, but then Jeroboam did something that made the Lord very angry. Uh, he forbade the people to come and worship at the central altar, and he set up altars of his own uh, in the northern kingdom. And uh, what would you suppose they did at those altars but to worship golden calves, as uh, Israel had done in the wilderness to God's great 
displeasure. So I have Jeroboam here listed as the first denominationalist. Uh, he presumed on his own authority to uh, divide the people of God, uh, to take them away from that place where the Lord wanted his name to dwell. Well, the prophets uh, um, recognize this as a very abnormal situation, a sinful situation, and they prophesy that uh, there are going to be great blessings after Israel returns from the exile that they've, uh, that they've gained by their disobedience, and the prophets say that there is going to be reformation, there's going to be revival, and there's going to be at the same time reunion. And uh, <clears throat> we find, of course, after they do come back, there is a time of reunion. They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles together, according to Ezra 3 and Nehemiah 8. But not all of the promises of the return are fulfilled right at that time. Certainly it's evident that uh, much needs to be done if this people is to be prepared to live in obedience to the Lord God. The New Testament church, uh, Jesus comes into the world, he um, teaches, he uh, lives a perfect life, he dies for the sins of his people, he is raised by God's power from the dead, and he uh, uh, sends forth the Spirit to uh, uh, gather in people from all the different nations. The New Testament church is essentially the same as Old Testament Israel. There's a unity there again. Uh, the New Testament church uh, represents the same olive tree that uh, Israel represents, but some branches have been broken off because of their unbelief. Other branches, the Gentile believers, have been grafted in uh, because of God's grace. And Paul warns that if they are disobedient, they too will be broken off. But there is one, uh, one tree uh, composed of both Jews and Gentiles, as we've heard in the other talks uh, uh, today. Uh, uh, the Lord has a great interest in keeping the Jews and Gentiles together, not allowing them to separate, not allowing them to form their own fellowships, uh, but rather uh, having them there uh, worshiping together in table fellowship with one another, uh, serving the same Lord, members of the same church. Uh, the emphasis on unity in the New Testament is very Strong. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one uh, Lord that we worship. We do all things in his name. Um, there is one spirit, there is one temple. We're, we're built together as the temple of the living God. Uh, <clears throat> we are one body in Christ. All of those metaphors uh, that uh, refer to the church emphasize, of course, the unity of the church. Now, is this unity only invisible, as uh, John is talking to us today? Um, it is that, but it is also certainly more. Uh, it's also a unity in government. Uh, the word church in the New Testament uh, represents not only the universal church, but also it represents the Christians in a particular city, the church at Corinth, the church at Jerusalem, the church of, uh, the church of Ephesus. 
um, or in a particular region. I've given you some references there. And this church uh, is uh, therefore visible. It's something that can be seen. Uh, the members of it can be identified uh, as uh, being in particular places. This church has a common government. Uh, the Lord establishes uh, Jesus Christ, of course, as the head of the church, but the church is to be ruled first by apostles and then by elders, uh, well, pro uh, prophets and, uh, and uh, so on, uh, at least one period of the history of the church, and then uh, by elders and by deacons. Uh, if you use the word bishop to describe the elders, that's fine. And then uh, obeying those leaders is not an optional matter. It's God's command. The Lord says, obey your leaders. <laughs> He's just, uh, just as uh, short with it as that, uh, Hebrews uh, 13. So uh, if you don't like uh, what your leader tells you to do, uh, perhaps there were some means of uh, appeal. Uh, we Presbyterians emphasize appeals courts, you know, presbyteries and all of that. Uh, perhaps you can appeal to other elders in your region, but uh, there's no indication that uh, you have the right to uh, break fellowship. Uh, say, I don't like these leaders that God has appointed. I'm going to go off and uh, start my own church and have leaders that are more acceptable to me. That's not an option that the Lord gives to his people. Now, this is to say that denominations... And you see my definition of denomination there. A denomination is a group of Christians who that differs from other groups of Christians by distinctives of doctrine, practice, ethnicity, historical background, and that are not under the same government. I should have added that perhaps a denomination, one denomination is not under the uh, same government as another denomination. Uh, denominations in this sense play no role in New Testament church government. You know, look up the word denomination in a concordance, you won't find it. Uh, look in the New Testament for something resembling a modern denomination and you won't find it. Uh, the only thing that comes close uh, would be something like Jeroboam's uh, actions, which as we've seen, uh, displeased the Lord very greatly. So uh, denominations play no role in New Testament church government, despite great differences in ethnicity. There's a great barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. People say today sometimes that uh, blacks and whites can't really worship in the same church. People say in my uh, reform circles, people even say that Dutch Reformed Christians can't worship in the same church with uh, Anglo-Reformed Christians. Uh, but there's no basis for saying that in the New Testament. A much greater ethnic division, uh, one which was much harder to overcome, this division between the Jews and the Gentiles, is not made the basis of a division. Paul doesn't say, okay, uh, you Jews go have your own church, and, we, and Gentiles, you go have your church. Doesn't say anything like that at all. They're they're to get along. That's not to say there have to be quotas. That's not to say that you can't uh, you know, have one church that speaks Aramaic and another church that speaks Greek. Uh, but but it's saying you, you should not. Uh, you know, if somebody from another ethnicity comes to you, you you welcome him. You don't turn him away. You you have table 
fellowship with them. Um, language, uh, not, not a basis for, for a different denomination. Um, these are not to be made the basis of divisions in the church. On all traditions, uh, traditional understandings of church polity, now I'm not going to try to solve tonight what, whether we should be Presbyterians or Episcopalians or, or Congregationalists, but uh, let me finesse that question by saying that on all these traditional understandings of church polity, there is to be one united church. In Episcopal polity, that unity is found through the single bishop, in congregational polity and uh, independent polity, you have churches that are in fellowship with one another, churches that are free to consult, uh, churches that are able to worship together when, uh, when uh, occasions permit, uh, to, uh, fellowship, to facilitate fellowship and communication. Presbyterian government uh, requires, of course, a system of graduated Courts in which everybody is under a certain jurisdiction, jurisdiction of a session, uh, that session under the jurisdiction of a presbytery, a presbytery under the jurisdiction of the whole church. And so we have, uh, I think uh, John mentioned, or one of the other speakers mentioned, the phenomenon in the New Testament where you have house churches, but those house churches are part of the city church, part of the Church at Corinth, part of the Church at Rome, uh, part of the Church of Jerusalem. And then uh, on occasion, uh, these churches appeal to a still higher body, as we see in Acts 15, the Apostolic Council in Jerusalem. Uh, no suggestion there that uh, you know, if you don't like the system of authority, if you don't like the presbytery you're in, if you don't like the, the uh, people who uh, make the decisions at the uh, universal level that you can just get up and leave and start your own church. Um, section H on uh, page 2, I don't know if you have the same pagination that I do, New Testament exhortations to unity. We've seen this in uh, also some of the other messages, Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17. And notice again, he doesn't say that uh, what he wants is spiritual unity in an invisible sense. He just prays for oneness, oneness and oneness of every sort. Doubtless it includes oneness of doctrine, oneness of, uh, of uh, devotion, uh, oneness of compassion for one another, uh, oneness of, well, we, we talked about uh, serving one another and uh, loving one another and glorifying one another, um, but also oneness of uh, of government, oneness of uh, of being part of the um, the church, um, local, regional, and universal. Paul calls for a harmonious working together of the body, that there should be no schism in the body, that there should be no division in the body. If uh, things don't work out, if we don't work well together, our, our job through God's grace, through God's power, is to, is to make it work together. Uh, church's temple, body, and family, I mentioned that earlier. All these metaphors, again, indicating uh, unity. Barriers to unity, condemned in the New Testament. Autonomy, picking and choosing which leaders we, 
want to respect. Think of the factionalism in uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, lust for power. Uh, remember James and John wanting to, wanting to sit on Jesus' right hand and his left hand. And, uh, and he's unwilling to grant them that and tells them that the greatest of you should be the servant of, uh, of all. Uh, unwillingness to reconcile, Matthew 5. Failure to maintain church discipline. Now, church discipline is important to unity. We sometimes think of church discipline as a fracture, uh, as a uh, as a, uh, a breakup of unity when we have to excommunicate somebody. But the the, the discipline has to work right um, if the church is to continue uh, in unity. If it's to continue together. In attention then to doctrinal and practical purity, I think Doug Wilson mentioned this that uh, you know you can't have uh, unity without discipline. You can't have unity without uh, caring about truth. It's that unity in the truth. It's that unity in discipline that uh, Scripture is talking talking about. Failure to help believers in need. So unity uh, number five there, kind of my summary. Uh, section unity is given by the sovereignty of God, but it requires the efforts of human beings. Now, let's not get into this trap that uh, some Calvinists uh, um, find themselves in uh, of, of saying that it's, it's all of God, uh, so our job is just to be passive. Our job is just to, just to wait around and see what God is going to do. That's not true in the Christian life, the individual Christian life. It's not true with regard to the big movements of history, and it's not true with regard to our church life either. Uh, yes, God is sovereign. Uh, if we have unity, we give to him all the glory for preserving that unity, for creating that unity and preserving it. But that doesn't mean we have no responsibility. We're, we have an obligation to uh, seek to... Uh, to not act autonomously, not to, uh, to um, form factions, not to have this lust for power. Uh, we have the obligation to uh, seek to reconcile with uh, uh, Christians that we're having problems with and so on and so forth. So it does require uh, the efforts of human beings. God uh, brings about his, his good purposes, but uh, uh, typically he brings about unity uh, using, uh, in his good pleasure, the efforts of human beings. Well, then there's another chapter in the book that uh, is more historical. As I told you, the three perspectives can't be totally separated from one another. Where do denominations come from? Well, uh, as we say, um, there's there, there some uh, anticipations of it in the Bible. The um, Jeroboam, uh, the factions in Corinth, but the factions never, in Corinth at least, never became denominations. Uh, um, Paul was urging them to stay together and to abandon the factions. So um, where did denominations come to historically? Well, we have these tendencies to division, which we've seen in the Word of God. Uh, in the first century, uh, there were heretics who uh, formed their own churches, who were not satisfied with uh, either the doctrine or the government of the church. Uh, we associate the name of Marcion and the name of Montanus with those groups. 
Later on, there were groups that were not formally heretical, not actually declared to be heretical, but were declared to be schismatic. The Novationists and the Donatists were orthodox theologically, and yet they uh, uh, believed that the, uh, the, the regular church uh, was impure because they had received people who uh, had, uh, who had uh, uh, betrayed uh, Christ and the persecutions. So uh, uh, these uh, bodies were formed their own churches, and for a time, uh, uh, for several centuries, the Novationist churches and the Donatist churches continued alongside the uh, Orthodox churches. In 1054, there's the split between uh, the Eastern churches and the Western churches um, over a number of things, uh, doctrinal as well as practical. In 1521, the excommunication of Martin Luther, which uh, led to uh, formation of quite a number of denominations after that uh, time. Um, uh, eventually, the floodgates were opened so that now we have thousands and thousands of denominations uh, in the world today. So we ask, in this uh, post-denominational situation, where is the one true church. Is there no such thing anymore as the one true church? Well, um, as we look over the horizon, certainly there are a lot of churches that uh, are bearing witness to the truth of Scripture, to the truth of Christ. Many individual churches, uh, many local churches that are true churches, certainly in the, uh, in the sight of God. Where does the true church exist? It exists at the local level, and it also exists at the highest level, because uh, Jesus still reigns supreme as the head of the church. And we, when we say Jesus is the head of the church, we mean Jesus is the head of the whole church, not uh, just the Presbyterians, not just the Reformed, uh, uh, not just one segment or one tradition, not just one ethnic group, but Jesus is the head of the whole church. He really is. Um, we don't see him at the moment with, our, with the eyes of our, of our bodies, but uh, he is ruling uh, from heaven. So it's not that the true church has vanished. Um, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that uh, denominations have destroyed the church by any means. The church is still here. Uh, it's the same church that existed in the first century, with Jesus on the throne and with uh, believers worshiping together uh, over and over again, every Lord's Day, throughout the week, uh, carrying out the word to, uh, to influence uh, uh, their uh, communities and to bring others to Christ, carrying out the Great Commission. But uh, it's at the middle levels that we have problems, Okay. At the middle levels, the church is kind of fragmented, kind of confused. I'm a Presbyterian. I live in Orlando. If I have a problem that uh, can't be resolved by my local church or can't be resolved by my presbytery, I should be able, as a good Presbyterian now, I should be able to appeal to a higher court, namely the court that rules all the Christians in Orlando. In Corinth, they had the Church of Corinth. 
and if they couldn't work out a problem in the house church, and again, I'm kind of assuming Presbyterian theology here, they couldn't work out the problem in the house church, they'd get it resolved by the city church. And if they couldn't get it resolved by the city church, they'd get it resolved by the church universal. Well, I still got my local church there in Orlando. But uh, if, I, if I want to appeal beyond that, I can't appeal to the church in Orlando. I can only appeal to the PCA churches in the Central Florida Presbytery. Um, not quite the same thing. There are only some Christians that I can appeal to. There are only some elders that I can appeal to. Not the whole church, but only the Presbyterian ones. Similar limitations, of course, exist uh, if you're a, an Episcopalian or if you're an Independent. Uh, um, we should be able to appeal to all the Christians in our town, uh, in our region, to get their opinions, to get their suggestions, to get their uh, to make use of uh, the uh, gifts that have been given to them. But no, because of denominations. We can only appeal to those that are like us, those who have the same history, those who have the same confessions, etc., etc. I suggest that, that we recognize that as a problem. And so I have a chapter in the book called Toward a Post-Denominational View of the Church. People sometimes quote uh, verses like uh, Matthew 16:18, you know, where Jesus uh, says uh, to Peter, uh, uh, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And then they say, let's say they're a free will Baptist, and they say, well, you see what Jesus says, you see what Jesus promises, he promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the free will Baptists. <laughs> Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And he's talking about the whole church. He's not talking about any denomination. He's not talking about the free will Baptists. He's not talking about the Methodists. He says, uh, you know, denominations come and go. Sometimes the gates of hell do prevail against denominations. But they don't prevail against the church. Jesus isn't saying that the gates of hell will not prevail against the PCA. He's saying the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So I'm suggesting that, that uh, we recognize what a low position denominations have within a scriptural way of looking at the church. The New Testament gives no, I make it even stronger, the New Testament gives no authority to denominations. Uh, you know, church have real authority over their people. They have the authority to bind and loose. They have the authority to teach and counsel. They also have the authority to discipline, if it comes to that. But uh, the denomination doesn't have the same biblical authority to do those kinds of things. What are denominations anyway? Well, denominations, I mean, we're kind of stuck with them. They're, they're not authorized by the Bible, but the, as I say, the church has been fractured at the middle levels. And so we have to have something 
that kind of works like a church at the middle levels. That's what denominations are. They're makeshifts, since the biblically ordained levels of government don't exist at the middle levels. And so uh, uh, we, 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 we play church. Well, that's maybe putting it too strong. But, but, but we set up denominations to kind of do the work of the church, to try to do the work of the church, to sort of be like the church as much as they can. I think, you know, we have to do that. I mean, we're stuck with that. We don't have anything better because the unity of the church at the middle levels is gone. But, uh, but we do that uh, because we have to. Another thing, uh, you know, God has promised, this is number three, um, under Roman numeral four, God has promised all spiritual gifts to the church. Has he, do, can we deduce from that that he's promised all spiritual gifts to the PCA or to the Assemblies of God or to the, to the Reformed Episcopal Church? I don't think so. He's promised a full accounting of spiritual gifts to the church and not to any denomination. What about the special love that we owe to one another as believers? Yeah, the Bible tells us that we should love, you know, remember a passage that one of you cited, uh, uh, show love to everybody, but especially to those of the household of faith. Is there a special love that we owe to people of our own denomination? Should PCA people love other PCA people more than they love Episcopalians and Baptists? I don't think so. The Bible doesn't say that. Leaving, what about leaving the church? Leaving the true church is sin. Leaving the true church is showing contempt for the leaders that God has given us. Is it sin to leave a denomination and join another denomination? I don't think so. Sometimes, of course, in specific situations, it is sinful because of our motives. Well, Roman numeral five, uh, problems created by denominationalism. We're living in a post-denominational society, so don't just take the, the promises of Scripture that are addressed to the church and apply them to your denominations. That's what I was talking about in the last section. In this one, there are special problems that are created because of the fragmentation of the church at the middle levels, which is another way of talking about denominationalism. A, the weakening of discipline. You know, your church disciplines you for sin. You go out and you go to the church next door. I heard a good, a good. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting old. I can't remember who I heard things from anymore. But uh, somebody, somebody told me about a situation where uh, was that here in uh, in uh, in Monroe, where uh, somebody was disciplined from one church and he went off and tried to join other churches, and they said no. <laughs> That's wonderful. I mean, when one when one church supports the discipline of the other church, and uh, and uh, but but that. That doesn't always happen. In fact, that's very rare that that happens. 
So what we have is that one church doesn't recognize the discipline of the other. The Methodist doesn't recognize, church doesn't recognize the discipline of the Presbyterian church. And so people feel free to, you know, if they get disciplined by one church, they feel free to go down the street and join another one. So church membership has come to mean very little. For denominationalism provides an easy way to leave a church without reconciliation. Section C, imbalance of spiritual gifts. As I said, God hasn't promised all the gifts of the Spirit to the Presbyterians or to the Charismatics or to the Baptists. And so what we tend to have is, uh, you know, an imbalance of a lot of intellectuals in the Presbyterian Church, a lot of evangelists in the uh, Baptist Church, a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of uh, mercy ministers in the uh, in the uh, Salvation Army and places like that. Um, you know, there's an imbalance of spiritual gifts. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you know if your church had had people who were gifted in all these different areas? But it turns out that some denominations are heavy in one area; others are heavy in another area. And that uh, produces all kinds of problems. We can't even cooperate, you know, if we uh, have a real problem in mercy ministry that some other denomination is very good at resolving. We can't very easily get their help because, of course, they're in a different denomination. Uh, D, lack of common courts to resolve differences. I referred to that earlier. E, hardening of existing differences making reconciliation more difficult. I think I mentioned earlier that we tend to, you know, harden the differences. If, 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 your, church, if your denomination divided from another denomination uh, 50 years ago, then for several generations you, you've been telling your kids how terrible that denomination is, and they've been telling their kids how terrible you are. And uh, every generation, the division between the two bodies becomes worse and worse. And you're not, uh, you're not ever able to sit down and think, now, are we really that far apart? Are we really as far apart today as we were 50 years, 50 years ago? Um, so it's, it, it, it gets worse and worse. Once a division is created, um, that division tends to stay uh, and to become harder and harder to reconcile. F, creating unholy alliances as heresy captures the denomination. I don't know how often it's happened that a denomination has gone in a liberal direction and people don't stand up and fight because uh, they're proud of their denomination. They, don't really, uh, they find it very difficult to believe that anything really seriously wrong could be going on in their home denomination. You know, people think of their denominations the way we think of our football teams and, and so on. Uh, uh, you know, my, this is my home. Denominationalism compromises the church's witness to the world. You look at us, we're supposed to have the mark of love, and what they see is division and separation. H, it leads to creedal stagnation. Why is it that we haven't had any new creeds? Uh, in Presbyterianism in the last 400 years or so. Well, 
It's uh, not because there's nothing new to talk about. It's not because there are no new heresies. It's just because, uh, you know, if the PCA comes up with a new creed, who, who cares? Except the PCA. Uh, you know, the OPC won't be bound by it. Nobody's bound by it except the PCA. So, you know, if you come up with a new creed, that just divides you even more from the other Christians and it doesn't accomplish anything. I, it leads to distorted priorities, preoccupation with the history and the activities and the virtues of a denomination to the detriment of um, those uh, in the church, majoring and minors. J leads to superficiality, taking spiritual nourishment from only one tradition. Be surprised how much you can learn from the Eastern Orthodox, from Roman Catholic writers. You're discouraged from doing that uh, by, uh, by the uh, tendencies toward denominationalism. Uh, K weakens the worldwide solidarity of Christians. Uh, you know, do we, do we care as much about those in the, the Sudan who are being persecuted by Muslims as the Jews of the world are concerned about what happens in Israel? We don't band together the way some other groups do. Because we're separated. We, we only know about the Presbyterians in Africa. And there aren't very many of those. Encourages unhealthy competition. M encourages ungodly pride and snobbery. So on. Okay, number six, the road back. Essentially re reversal of the above. Bit by bit, piece by piece. Learning how to distinguish essential from non-essential disagreements. I remember this afternoon I urged uh, some of you young theologians to get to work on that. What's the difference between an essential and a non-essential disagreement? Well, we need to get a clearer idea of that if we're going to somehow bring more unity into the church. Remember those situations where Christians are forced to be together. A brother told us a little bit about uh, Russia, where some Christian is being beaten up, right? And... Uh, and uh, there were people of four different denominations who joined in to, uh, to bring a little bit of divine uh, uh, vengeance against the attacker. Um, that's wonderful, okay? Um, but you get, you get out in the mission field and the denominational differences somehow don't seem to be so important. Uh, that's the way the early church was under persecution. Pioneer missions, military chaplaincies, neighborhood Bible studies. I discussed some of these in the book. Uh, pray for unifying virtues. Pray that God will rebuke all these uh, attitudes that uh, I mentioned there under Roman numeral two, the, the lust for power and the, and the um, uh, desire for uh, and the contentiousness. Um, pray for unifying virtues. Adopt a grace perspective, which takes away our pride, recognizing that the, you know, everything that we have comes from God, comes from Christ, uh, recognizing that none of us uh, has anything in ourselves that can please God, so we're not really better in the sight of God than these people, these fellow Christians who are outside of our denomination. Um, Asking forgiveness, top of four, and having asked forgiveness, then we should 
proclaim the freedom of Christ to be one with all his people, press the envelope, uh, do things that people aren't expecting you to do, to uh, cooperate with another church, to help them out in time of need, to uh, defend their cause uh, when they're unfairly attacked by somebody else, to uh, <clears throat> let other Christians and other groups know that you consider them brothers and sisters, to let down a little bit on the <clears throat> historical rhetoric, um, all, of the, uh, all of the traditional negatives that we bring against one another, and see, pay more attention to what we have in common and uh, the kind of solidarity that we can, we can establish. And then who knows? You know, people say, uh, sometimes uh, accuse me of wanting to join the Roman Catholics tomorrow and so on and so forth. Certainly not. Uh, <laughs> that's a long way away. But the, the original title of my book was not Evangelical Reunion. It was Toward Reunion. And the publisher changed it to Evangelical Reunion because the publisher was afraid that... Uh, if they called it toward reunion, it might sound as though uh, I wanted to join the Roman Catholic Church. And so evangelical reunion, they thought, was the best uh, title for it. But, um, you know, I'd like to join the Roman Catholic Church. Not tomorrow. Right? Maybe I should have pressed the button. The mute, <laughs> mute button. If you quote me, please quote me in context, okay? The Roman Catholic Church will have to change a lot. Uh, before they will be ready for me. Right? <clears throat> and uh, we'll all have to change a lot, probably. But is it beyond the possibility of conception that in 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, you post-millennialists who think that we might have 10,000 or 20,000 years until the Lord returns, is it impossible to consider uh, that the Lord might work in such a way as to bring his people together again in visible unity? I don't think that's, uh, that's a terribly unrealistic thing, but at least I believe it's his will that we work toward it now. Maybe by little steps, just by relating to one another in different ways. And I, I, I think that the Lord will honor that. And if we don't have big reunions in my lifetime, and I'll tell you that my book didn't generate a rash of church unions, <laughs> there are more denominations now than in the church when the book was written. But, you know, we do what we can, and we trust the Lord to, to give the increase. Let's pray. Dear God, help us to dream big dreams. Help us to dream dreams that are in your will. Uh, help us, Lord, to fantasize about the things that delight your heart. And we pray, Lord, that these dreams will not just be dreams, but that they will motivate our conduct and our attitudes. And that uh, we shall see some reunions in our lifetime. Convince us, Heavenly Father, that this is your will. And we pray, Lord, that you will bring about a much greater unity of your church 
through the years uh, so that the world may know that uh, Jesus is our Lord and that his love is residing in our hearts. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.